Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Predators. Their acts are evil. We call them monsters. We say no human could perpetrate the crimes they have committed. But in truth, only human beings execute these horrific acts. And if you're like me, you want to know why. I'm Ariel Cooksey, and this is Malice. discussions of child abuse and reckless child abuse resulting in death. If these issues may be triggering, please practice self-care and do not proceed. We are born with soft souls. Though our minds may be more or less susceptible, more or less resilient to combating maladaptive behaviors, our souls are undamaged when we enter into this world. I'm not religious nor spiritual, but by these terms we can transcend the idea of tabula rasa. We're not blank slates. We carry the baggage genetically, emotionally, materially of those who came before us, and it does have an impact on who we become. Of that much there is no doubt. But we are not born broken. Our brains or our bodies may not be just so, for us to be that elusive normal, we all can't describe, but know it when we see it. But we're not filled with rage or hatred or cruelty. We're just not. And somewhere throughout each of our lives, we encounter things that harm us, that leave black scorch marks and bruises on the landscape of our hearts and in the tender curves of our sinews, through the marrow of our bones. Someone steals that softness, that lightness with which we first experience the world. We can be lucky, having families and loved ones who do their best to lift us back up despite their own pains and struggles. We may have talents, a mathematical mind, or a clever wit, or a solid work ethic, or the gift of song. We may have healthier bodies, be born with sturdier minds, or maybe just look at the world in ways that draw out the beauty rather than the barrenness. 
But when that contented tranquility is broken, it's broken. You can return to healthy functioning. You can evolve into or learn a better mindset. But the scar remains. It can cause us to withdraw, to lash out, to hate others, or even hate ourselves. We each have these battles. Suffering is, indeed, the single unifying experience among us. We are all weathering the same store, as it were. But we're not in the same boat. But what if we were promised we could return to that blissful ignorance before the awakening? That we could have a cosmic do-over? At what cost would it take to pursue such a chance? Would you risk your memory? Your family? Your health? Or even human life? And whose choice is it anyway? It's unfortunately not an uncommon tale. She was born to an impoverished teen mother and a violent father, shipped around from trailer to shelter, from foster home to foster home, for the first five years of her life. It's not that anyone asks for this type of circumstance. Choice plays a part, sure, but mostly it's an intergenerational transmission of risk. You emulate what you're born into, and in this case, her parents simply did not provide a place for a child. At age five, she was adopted by a 42-year-old nurse practitioner who had every hope to give the child the life she had never even imagined. The pink bicycle, the swimming lessons, the pretty ribbons in her hair. And at first, it seemed to be all of those things. But as I've mentioned before in this podcast, the first five years of life are the time during which the most critical brain development occurs. 95% of the brain is hardwired by that point. And the less stability, the more chaos, the more difficult it is to rein in the maladaptive behaviors. Attachment breaks down into three different subtypes, secure, ambivalent, and avoidant. The secure attached child bonds with a caregiver who molds to them, both physically and in terms of need. The child expresses a need, and the caregiver responds. This becomes the expectation, and that expectation, if consistently met, will lead to a child who is willing to take healthy risks and explore their environment with confidence, knowing they have a safe harbor to return to. The ambivalently attached child still desires a caregiver's attention and love, but their needs are not consistently met. This is a child who may run full speed toward their caregiver after an absence, but with arms back, and upon being picked up may push against the caregiver, happy to be held, just not too close. The avoidantly attached child simply doesn't trust the caregiver. They're accustomed to their needs not being met and not knowing what to expect from their caregiver, if any attention at all. In this attachment style, that, without intervention, leads to often lifetime problems with empathy and connection to others. A particularly rare but severe form of avoidant attachment is reactive attachment disorder, or RAD, diagnosed between nine months to five years of age. A child who is exposed to extreme abuse and neglect fails to bond with the parent or caregiver at all, leading to irritability, fearfulness, sadness, and the inability to connect with peers or other adults. 
People often laud the child who never cries for being well-behaved and calm. But honestly, any child who displays such a temperament is simply not used to having their needs met, and their HPA system, which was detailed in the episode Happy Valley, is screaming under the surface. These children rarely seek out comfort when distressed, which they are often, and show little positive affect. They lack trust. They lack self-worth. They are angry and feel powerless, which leads to a need to exert control however possible. This disorder profoundly affects the child's ability to form meaningful attachments as they age, and often manifests in acting out against oneself and often others. And at the time of her adoption, this child was diagnosed with RID. Adoptive parents don't always know what exactly they're walking into when they bring a child home. Her adoptive mother had every good intention, but as any parent who has experience with children with challenges and special needs, it's not always an easy path to tread. This child wasn't the living embodiment of a nightmare. She had her moments of smiles and laughter. There are some darling pictures of her in which she's beaming. But the trauma hit her hard, and it hit her repeatedly during the most formative years of her life. She didn't immediately bond with her adopted mother. She resisted, in fact, prone to the expectation she would once more be abandoned. Who could blame her? And yet her adoptive mother knew their interaction was not sustainable. By seven years old, her mother was nearly at the end of her tether. She tried to apply her medical knowledge. She tried referrals to all types of doctors and specialists, but nothing seemed to work. For all intents and purposes, the child was beyond control. But then, a beacon of hope arose. She was referred by the child psychologist in North Carolina to a well-respected pioneering attachment therapist in Evergreen, Colorado. The therapist would conduct intensive two-week attachment sessions in order to build the bond between child and parent. Despite the program costing a staggering $7,000, the child's mother went in full force. Anything to help her child. Anything to bring them together and help her child find peace. During the first week, things seemed to be progressing well. The girl began to show improvement in many ways, and her mother was optimistic. It was a week and a half into treatment that the therapist decided she was ready for rebirthing. To the unacquainted, rebirthing therapy, if you care to call it that, is predicated on a child wrapped up tightly while pressure is applied to simulate a mother's womb. The child must push their way out, symbolically being reborn into the world, at which point attachment is considered a clean slate and the child and parent can begin to bond, as if from the start. This was the final stage of the therapy, and this child had shown such promise that she was ready ahead of schedule. The blue flannel sheet was laid out, and the child was asked to lay down on it, curling into the fetal position. The sheet was then wrapped around her and pillows piled on top of her, the four adults leaning in and on top of her, and she was instructed to push her way out. Use your legs. Push harder. Birth is pain. But the 70-pound girl, a mere 10 minutes in, screamed she couldn't do it, that she couldn't breathe. They told her to keep trying. She writhed and pushed as hard as she could, but kept screaming for help. 
But this was all part of the process. She needed to be reborn so she could start anew. She continued to cry out that she couldn't breathe, that she couldn't move. But despite the combined weight of 673 pounds, using hands and feet to push on the child's head and chest, she was coaxed to continue. She begged for help and air. And as the session continued, she told them 11 times she was dying. One of the therapists responded to her the last time, telling the girl, quote, Go ahead. Die right now. Within 20 minutes of the session beginning, she had vomited and defecated inside the sheet, but still was not freed. Forty minutes in, her movements became more faint. She ceased to push or struggle. One therapist shouted at her, quote, Quitter! 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 Quit, 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 quit. She's a quitter. At this stage, the child's mother was asked to leave as she perceived the child's inability to be reborn as a rejection. The therapist in charge explained her sorrow might be felt by the child until she was escorted from the room to watch the remainder of the session by video. Minutes later, the two assisting parents were asked to leave as well, leaving only the two therapists with the child. They spoke for five minutes before deciding to unwrap the girl and found her listless body. Her fingertips were blue, and it was clear she wasn't breathing. The head therapist remarked, quote, Oh, there she is. She's sleeping in her vomit. But the girl's mother knew better. She rushed into the room and began to perform CPR on her daughter while the therapist called emergency services. Ten minutes later, paramedics arrived. And though they were able to restore her pulse and she was care flighted to the hospital, she was pronounced brain dead the next day, a result of asphyxia. It's unknown how long she had been unconscious and suffocating before released from her torture. You see, rebirthing therapy for its radical nature and the claims of success by its practitioners is not empirically verified nor peer-reviewed. It is entirely anecdotal in terms of success, but it's not just that it hasn't faced the rigors of other methods of intervention. The fact is, the entire therapy is based on a catharsis model, which, when run through the academic ringer, has proven to actually increase aggression and rage among those who experience the process, which causes a spiral into parents having to exert total dominance and power. This can include things as extreme as locking children into small spaces and even physically holding them down. It's proven harmful and even soundly re-traumatizing. Not only does it create panic within an anomalous situation, but it places the blame upon a traumatized child for their own lack of attachment. The implications are beyond disturbing. And the horrifying fact is in some states it is not only legal, but still practiced. Candace Elizabeth Newmaker, troubled and from a series of hard places, died at the hands of supposed therapists, and by that I mean explicitly neither was licensed. This method, this abomination of therapeutic intervention, was allowed to proceed and carry on for 70 minutes. 70 minutes in which a 10-year-old child vomited, defecated, screamed, grasped for air, 
begged for help, begged for her life, and not one person came to her aid. It's enough to make you sick. People are quick to judge her mother, Jean Newmaker, but we must also bear in mind this was a woman at her wit's end. She sought help from respected experts in whom she felt she could place her trust. We can look at the situation in hindsight, but would we have behaved differently? We see her reticence, her anxiety, and think, why didn't she just stop it? It's a hard thing to understand, but it's as old as humankind. In 1951, Solomon Ash conducted his very first conformity laboratory experiments. The task was for groups of eight male college students to observe two cards, one with a reference line and another with three labeled lines of varying heights, and determine which of the three lines matched the reference line. In every experimental group, seven of the eight participants were actors with carefully detailed scripts about how to respond out loud when asked for their line comparisons. The final speaker was the actual subject of the study. Each trial was repeated 18 times. During the first and second trials, 100% of answers were correct. But on the third trial, the answers given by the actors were universally the same wrong answer. This blanket wrong answer would recur 12 times within the 18 total trials. As a control condition, there were also individuals who were tested independently without outside influence. In this control group, the error rate was less than 1%. Within the actor condition, the majority of responses remained correct, but an alarming minority, 36.8%, conformed to actors' incorrect answers. Overall, 75% of participants in the trials gave at least one incorrect answer out of the 12 critical trials where the actors answered wrongly. Ash put it this way, quote, that intelligent, well-meaning people are willing to call white black is a matter of concern. But it isn't only peer conformity that creates an undue pressure to follow suit. In 1963, Stanley Milgram contributed his own disturbing findings from his studies on obedience to authority figures. In his experiment, the study participants were instructed to send a series of electric shocks to an actor who had responded to various levels of pain in response to wrong answers on a memory test. As the experiment progressed, the experimenter would instruct the participant to amplify the shocks administered. They were told the learner, or rather actor, was in no danger, and that the participant just needed to follow the directions so the study could proceed. These shock levels gradually increased to a level that would have been fatal if they had been real. Throughout the course of the study, each participant displayed symptoms of discomfort or distress, ranging from digging nails into their skin to groaning to sweating, trembling, stuttering, biting their lips, and in some cases, even going into nervous fits of laughter or seizures. The emotional toll was blatant, which led to the updated code of ethics in human subjects research. Every participant paused at least once to question the experiment. And yet... Unexpectedly, despite hesitance on the part of most study participants, a very high proportion, 65%, would fully obey the instructions culminating in a 450-volt shock 
while 100% of participants were willing to administer shocks of at least 300 volts. When we are in positions in which someone else is perceived to be more knowledgeable or more powerful, we are inclined to follow suit. They wouldn't possibly lead us astray, right? As people conform under the authority of the powers that be, there are more or less forceful or insidious ways to seek deindividuation. Deindividuation is a socio-psychological concept wherein which members of a group experience a loss of self-awareness. When the individual enters into a psychological state of decreased self-evaluation and evaluation apprehension, it causes anti-normative and disinhibited behavior. This willingness to conform, to serve a higher function as a group, is evident in cults, violent crowds, lynch mobs, and genocides. Think of it as a hive mind of sorts, but it is equally present in the circumstances of the rebirthing ritual. When we consider the interplay of these social and psychological phenomena, it makes it far more difficult to ascertain how we might respond in situations that strain our morality and judgment in every way. There are always those who are willing to buck the tides, but they must often do so by putting their own necks on the line. There was no set of expectations outside of the trust me of those in charge. And ultimately, a desperate mother did just that, never having any idea of the tragic consequences. She was seeking her child's love and well-being, and instead, her child's life was lost. Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder were both found guilty of reckless child abuse, resulting in death, and were sentenced to 16 years each. Watkins served a mere seven years of her sentence. When I began this episode... I posed the question that if you could have a cosmic do-over, would you take it? But perhaps, more importantly, I asked, whose choice is it? This child's last word was in response to Connell Watkins asking, quote, Do you want to be reborn? Ten-year-old Candace Newmaker responded quietly, No. As always, thank you so much for your support and encouragement. It means the world to me. If you would like to support the show, visit patreon.com slash malicepod, where you can access bonus content for as little as $1 a month, including my current collaboration with world-renowned criminologist, profiler, and expert on abnormal homicides, Dr. Lee Miller, where we explore the sinister case of the Werewolf of Los Angeles series, beginning with the murder of the Black Dahlia. Find me on social media at Malice Podcast on Twitter and at Malice Pod on Instagram and TikTok. To reach me directly, email me at malicepod at gmail.com. I love to hear from listeners, so my door is always open. I hope you will join me next week as I will be back with another sinister case, this time involving a perpetrator with a real chip on his shoulder. Until then, I'm Ariel Cooksey. And this is Malice.